I'm going to say something kind of weird. This is the beginning of the part of DS9 I enjoy most. This episode and the following six episodes form a seven-episode... Seven-episode? Seven-episode arc, which is actually usually referred to as the Dominion War. Now, whether this is an official nomenclature or not is up to you, but <clears throat> this is one of only two times Deep Space Nine actually approaches string continuity. Now... I've talked about this a few times before, but to reiterate very quickly, string continuity is when one episode leads directly into the next, into the next, into the next, into the next. Or, to put it in a more simple way, it's when seven episodes are really one episode, one story, just told across multiple iterations. This is something that Star Trek almost never does. It does this here, it does this at the end of Season 7, and it does this across Season 3 of Enterprise, and kind of does it in Season 4 of Enterprise. That's a whole other barrel. I don't want to talk about that. Obviously, Discovery has also pushed into string continuity as well. Although, by the time this episode goes live, I believe Season 3 of Discovery will go live. From the perspective of recording, that it has not yet gone live, so I can't speak to that. So, I tend to enjoy this stuff, but it's just funny to think about that it's Season 6 when it's finally like, yeah! This is way in here, isn't it? <clears throat> It takes until this episode, until official war is declared between the Dominion and the Federation. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. Now, I'm an armchair general here a little bit. Even got the armchairs for it. They're actually really uncomfortable. I don't even know why. You ever wonder why these armchairs are super, like, hard? Like, hard plastic? You'd think having something soft to rest your arms on would make sense, right? <laughs> the I've been saying for a while that the Federation should have never let things get this far. And it is my opinion, based on the strategic situation, that the Federation made a gargantuan mistake in waiting so long to allow a formal declaration of war against the Dominion. You'll also notice, by the way, if you're paying attention, that at least on paper... Even though war was probably declared by the Dominion, they waited until they had a valid Cassus Belly. Like, you caught that, right? Because the Federation mining the wormhole is the Cassus Belly for the Dominion to then declare war. They can say, oh, they were preventing us from sending aid to our allies. And they now have a valid political reason to conquer. They don't need that, it's worth noting. But they had it. Now... That's probably, I say they don't need that, it's probably also helpful, especially given the fact that they are trying to move the other powers into a position of not being against them. In this episode, we find out they maneuvered the Romulan Star Empire into a non-aggression pact. I have some theories about that, but I'd like to save those for later. The Romulans will be coming up later, don't worry. All I'm going to say right now is that puts one of the big three out of the picture. And, in case I have to elaborate on this, Federation, Klingons, Romulans. That's the big three. Always has been. So, moving one of those powers out of the picture is a huge win for the Dominion. And you can see what the Romulans are probably thinking on this one. You know, sure, go ahead, fight each other out. We'll just stay back here. The problem is the Romulans are thinking of this from a typical perspective, not a Dominion perspective. They, in short, underestimate what the Dominion can do. If the Dominion was another big power that didn't have the severe advantages they had, then what the Romulans did here is actually very smart. 
They allow their enemies to wear each other down, and then they are in a superior position, either militarily, politically, financially, industrially, any of the above, right? They also mention, what was I wrote it down, the Tholians, who... I swear we get more Tholian stuff in STO than anything else. And the Miradorn, you remember them, right? You don't remember them? Way back in Vortex? Yeah, it's been a while. The Dominion regularly sends ships through to reinforce. This is the problem. Now, you might say, well, Lore, you're being, you're, you're, you're using hindsight. You know about the minefield. Yes and no. Here's the problem. The Federation, before knowing about the minefield, is looking at a situation in which their enemy, who is their enemy, there's no denying this, is regularly sending more and more and more ships into proper position. You ever play a 4X game? Or any kind of strategy game, like a grand strategy game, where the enemy has just kind of started piling troops right at your border, just staring at you like, hi. No, we're still at peace right now. I need to move another few more dozen troops onto your border. That's what the Dominion's doing here, functionally. They're getting their fleets in position in the Alpha Quadrant, ready to go. So, the Federation can only look at this from two perspectives. They They can't do anything about this, in which case they are screwed, or they can do something about this, in which case they need to figure out what. In short, they should have had the meeting about mining the minefield weeks, if not months ago, way back before this many ships got over here. Now, with the advantage of hindsight, we can say that would have led to a much better situation. Why? Because it would have mean they would have set up the minefield, which we'll talk about in just a second, way more in advance, and the Dominion would have had less ships on this side of the wormhole. That's relevant, because that means the Dominion would be at much less capacity. I hate to skip ahead a little bit, but do keep in mind, the Dominion very nearly wins the Dominion War against the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. And that's with all Big Three fighting them and their access to the wormhole cut off. And yet, despite the Dominion not having access to their thousands upon thousands of fleets, or thousands of thousands of ships, they still nearly won this war. Consider that for a moment. Consider that the Dominion, with their hand tied behind their back, and blindfolded, still nearly beat the big three. That's important to keep in mind, because part of the reason they are operating at even that capacity and not even less is because the Federation let things get too far, which is my point. I already made this point before, and I I believe this is the last time I will make this point, but I feel this is a really good episode to discuss it, and I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. In fact, I'm hopeful... Uh, Lore Reloaded, who I know watches a couple of my episodes, is going to watch this one because I would love to hear his thoughts specifically on this should-have-declared-war-earlier, should-have-mined-earlier concept that I am positing here. I know I've seen his own videos, and he mentions the idea that the Federation is not exactly completely innocent in how they, uh, shall we say, aggressively provoke the Dominion into a counter-response. And I agree with some of his points there, but... The problem here is that the Dominion is a hostile force and, in my opinion, should diplomatically and politically be perceived as such and dealt with as such. And the Federation doesn't do that. The Federation goes, nah, 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 until it's way past tolerance. I learned at a very young age you can't do that. You can't let people walk all over you unless you have tremendous power. Because remember, power equals mercy. Or... 
Um, I guess that's it. That's the only exception, basically. Because all that's going to do is make people walk all over you. And they're going to push you. And they're going to hurt you. And they're going to provoke you. Until it gets to the point where you finally react. And that reaction is going to go much worse than it would have if you'd done it earlier when it was measured and carefully thought out. Instead, so it's going to be mostly an emotional reaction. And that's going to lead to a bigger mess. This is true even on an individual level. How many of you ever had to deal with a bully back in school? Because I have. You let a bully push you and provoke you and hurt you? Snap your bra? Any of that crap? I'm sure at least some of you had to deal with that garbage. And you, if you let them, if you let them walk over you too far, then when you finally snap back, it looks like it's your fault. You have to have a preemptive response in place. And, there's, and, I, can't, and I know what you're thinking, what preemptive response? Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends on the specific circumstances. You need to go to someone, or you need to confront them, or you need to stand up for yourself, or you need to avoid them. It, it depends. And in this case, preventing the Dominion from reaching a hand out into the Alpha Quadrant was, in my opinion, the correct response. I know this because the fact that they mined that field means they have a chance at winning this war. Emphasis, a chance, not a guarantee. I love the fact that Cisco learns about the Romulan non-aggression pact from Nog. By the way, that's hysterical. <laughs> it says something about Quark's information network, if I can put it into such terminology, and the value of something like a good bartender on your side. <clears throat> so Jake formally joins the Starfleet News Service in this episode. This is actually going to be a recurring thread, believe it or not. So I th and I I shouldn't even say that. A lot of things are going to be established in this episode that are going to come up a lot for, like, the next season. So this is just another thing. From this point on, in many ways... Uh, how do I phrase this? In many ways, the gloves were off. Um, there's a quote by Iris Stephen Bear where he mentioned that Rick Berman pretty much told him, yeah, do whatever. This was, uh, this was mostly true for Season 7, but it was also true for part of Season 6. And... In my opinion, you can tell, both for good and for bad, when it comes to Season 6 and Season 7, that the executive meddling was basically removed from the picture, for the most part. And instead, everything was being focused on just the actual creative staff. So we do get some dreck, but we also get some awesome. And I think that's pretty much the usual trade-off for when you let the creative staff do what they want to. Experimenting, right? So we get to start... This is when all of my complaints about sub-characters and sub-recurring... You know, continuity elements are going to basically go away. Because from this point onwards, they're going to be recurring and they're going to keep coming up. So, <sighs> They mention uh, a nice line about we're losing the peace, and so war may be our only hope. I just want to comment on that because all I can say to that is, uh, yeah, it's a very unfortunate reality that war... <sighs> war is a terrible thing. I think we can all say that, but... There are possible circumstances, and I'm going to stick with fiction on this one, if that's okay with you. In fiction, where it is acceptable to go to war, or tolerable to go to war. Never a good thing, but sometimes it is better than a worse thing, you know what I mean? So then we see Rom, O'Brien, and Dax, and then they come up with the self-replicating minds. <laughs> okay, I'm going to dig into this one a little bit, if you'll forgive me. But here's the summary, in case you don't care. The self-replicating minds are magic. 
And Huthor, if you're watching this, I'm waiting for you to hate me for this, but honestly, they're stupid. It actually kind of bothers me. Not just because of the fact that they're magic, which bothers me to begin with, especially in Star Trek, but because of the fact that they are such an incredibly critical plot point. The main overarching story focus of this and the next six episodes are all rotating around these minds. If these minds don't exist, it's over. The Dominion comes in and they win. And that's that. Right? Everything makes that clear. As I just mentioned many, many times and re-emphasized over and over, the Dominion, while handicapped, while handicapped, managed to nearly win. If the Dominion comes out as full tilt through that wormhole, that is game. Those minds have to be there. But they're nonsense. Now, <clears throat> what I mean by that is they're self-replicating minds. So in other words, they don't actually clarify if the mine re-replicates itself, which would make no sense, or if they re-replicate a nearby one, which is still kind of tricky, but at least more possible, as long as they time it right. You know, a mine goes off, replicate a new one, and then go off, replicate a new one, and then go off, right? Okay, sure, that makes sense. Star Trek has many times established the way the replicators work. They take something, and they turn it into something else. Now, depending on the specific point in Star Trek, that something is either matter, just raw matter, this is true in the original series, uh, this is even stated flat out in Enterprise, or just raw energy, if you happen to have the energy output necessary to produce that. Uh, and uh, TNG mentioned that a few times, but as I've said a few times before, the energy output of a galaxy-class starship is gargantuan. It's, it's larger than what most of a city takes in real life. So, that's a lot of juice, is what I'm trying to say. Or pre-existing matter. What are the minds using to replicate? <sighs> you kind of see the problem here. There's no, like, this doesn't work, basically. There's no, there's no way around this. They either have to have a cache of matter, which is lost the moment they explode, are somehow reclamating matter from some unknown source, or they have the ability to generate energy, which they then use to generate the same amount of energy that they are generating, also known as 100% efficiency, or effectively, truly infinite energy source, which is something that's a bit beyond even Star Trek, especially the Federation. And even that doesn't quite explain it. Now, I'm hammering on the mind's point for a bit, because for years I have heard fans talk about this story arc, the Dominion War, the seven-episode arc here, and one of the biggest points of contention is not actually the mines. It's something else, which we'll get to in the seventh episode. But for me, these mines actually bother me even more, specifically because of the fact that they are such a critical and crucial point that actively works against the established points of the franchise. It's, and it's both of those things in combination. It's nonsense, and it's critically important. It's effect, they're effectively a plot hole, to put it in a simplistic terminology. Unlike, say, the Prophets, which are well-established within the continuity of Star Trek, and operate exactly how they tend to. We'll get to that later, though. I am actually looking forward to seeing people disagree with me about the mines. And if anybody can come up with any other ideas, I'm, I'm listening, because... Um, I've heard a few people try to justify the minds over the years, and I've never heard of anything I consider convincing. But, you know, this is, this is a great format to reach out to a lot of Trekkers or Trekkies or Trek fans or whatever you want to call yourself. So I'm actually curious of your guys' thoughts. <sighs> Odo and Kira. And rewind. Reinforcements. None. 
they decide to not reinforce this area. Now, this is definitely getting into armchair general territory, but I kind of wonder if that was the right call. On, the, on paper, the logic and strategy is sound. You attack where the enemy is not, okay? It's a Fabian tactic, right? But if you're going to do something like that, you need to make sure that you are gaining equal to or greater than what you are losing. They're losing Deep Space Nine, which is a hell of a loss, in addition to Bajor and the political points associated there, too, and probably access to the entire sector, which also gives them easy access to the Cardassian territory. What they gained is the loss of an enemy factory, a shipyard, more specifically. I'm not sure that was worth it. I'm really not. It's just something interesting to note. Because I have heard some people argue that they, if they had come with the entirety of the full military capacity of the Starfleet to this battle, they might have actually been able to push back the Dominion forces that were present. Because the Dominion didn't really overcommit here. It's something like a hundred ships, which sounds like a lot, and that's because it is. But we'll hear later about hundreds of Federation ships being lost in future engagements. So we know the Dominion didn't overcommit here. Now, you could argue that maybe that would just force the Dominion to then recommit, and then the Federation will lose their forces. And you can see why this is definitely armchair general. This is just the realm of theory crafting. I'm just bringing up the question. I'm not saying they did anything wrong here. So then Odo and Kira have a scene. It's actually a really, really good scene. I want to point out that Odo basically... Odo flat out says, I'm not going to pursue you now. I want to pursue you later. There's definitely some interest there. But what he says is, for the moment, the crisis must take our attention. And that's what really should be our focus. So, can we be friends for right now? And I do like how both of them immediately start becoming more comfortable around each other the moment he says that. It's a nice touch. Now, I like Nana Visitor as an actress. She, she manages a lot of subtlety with her emotions and how she presents them. Based on her portrayal, based on her acting, I like to think that she actually was waiting for him to ask her out and that she would have said yes, that she was willing to pursue this. It's just they were in that awkward period. The fact that he decided to delay means the awkward period is still over, so she still feels relieved. But you kind of get the idea that that wasn't what she was expecting. Moving on. <clears throat> So, <laughs> there's this really great scene where Wayun and Cisco uh, play at politics at each other. I'm not moving the mines. Then this must be, they must be removed. Well, okay. And then they spend the rest of the meeting just speaking nonsense. Oh, really? I had no idea it had gotten that bad. Yes, those poor Cardassians. You don't understand how horribly they have it. We'll limit our well to troop, economic, industry, and you'll take down the minefield. Excellent, I agree. It's funny, uh, Jeffrey Combs has also mentioned he loved that scene too, because there's just something wonderfully enjoyable, at least in fiction, about that kind of saying something that everyone present knows is a lie, and just kind of staying in character, so to speak, the entire time, while communicating other things underneath it, a few kind of a thing. It's just, it's just amusing. I just wanted to comment on that. But I did have a comment. Weyun mentions how there were Cardassians who were starving when they showed up. Now, I believe that, mostly because of the Klingon conflict, which broke the back of the Cardassian military. But I've always wondered, have the Cardassians ever recovered from being in their horrible state 
I know what you're thinking. What are you talking about, Laura? This is actually not all that commonly addressed in Deep Space Nine, but it was established firmly in TNG. In fact, one of my favorite episodes to comment on for this regard, in fact, I think that'll be going live somewhere recent to this episode, is Chains of Command. You know what? Hang on just a second. I'm curious now. So I got my calendar where I keep track of all this stuff. Let's see, where are we at? 13 episodes before here. Nope. Looks like, oh, it's a ways. Oh my gosh. So this episode will be going live in March. Uh, Chain of Command will be going live in June. Wow. Let me, let me tell you, I can't wait to talk about that one. That's a fantastic two-parter. But getting back to my point, in Chain of Command, it is very firmly established that the Cardassian were not doing well. That their infrastructure, that their economics, that their food production, that they were just um, barely holding on. And so they used military expansion and conquest to try and feed their people. Then we find out that it, it basically there are hints and, and little inferences from then, which at this point was like seven years ago, until now, that they never really got better than that. Oh, sure, they brought in resources, but that, those resources were then put towards more expansion, put towards the rich, put towards the military. And so the actual populace never really got any better. Now, that may or may not be true. But I've always, I hate to say this, I've always liked the idea that that is true. Mainly because, A, it shows how the self-feeding problem doesn't resolve these kind of situations. And B, because of the obvious Roman parallels. But And then C, finally, because it means that when the actual civilian government takes over Cardassia after DS9 is over they might be able to actually start feeding their damned people, especially with the assistance and aid of the Federation. So, um, Cisco finally, finally realizes the truth. Bajor needs a non-aggression pact. <laughs> I mean, duh, right? You really do gotta feel for Bajor here, though. There's a tidbit at the beginning of the episode where they mentioned that Molly and Keiko have been shipped uh, back to Earth. And you get the impression that they've been shipping people out of Deep Space Nine for a while now, bringing it down to just the personnel. No families, and, well, we know other people have been bowing out, too. Uh, that was mentioned in the previous episode when Cisco mentions to Kai Wynn that you know, one of the, the people in the promenade has bailed because they don't want to be on Deep Space Nine. I mean, I, I don't want to compare people to rats, but you kind of get the analogy here. But the reason I bring this up is because <laughs> this really is a screwed up situation, isn't it? More species signing pacts, non-aggression, trade, science, alliance, vassalhood, under the Dominion, is a bad thing long term. The more that do it, the more likely it becomes that other races will do it. And, and I mean, I hate to spoil, but there are other races in the future which will decide to side with the Dominion. So this idea is not cool. But you can appreciate how Bajor is pushed up against a rock in a hard place here, and someone's pouring molten lava over their heads because they have no other choice other than mass evacuation of their planet, and do you really think the Bajorans would go for that? So they have to sign this, thereby making things worse. The only thing that this works in favor of them is that the Dominion is going to be trying very hard to keep that a pact, to, because it's their chance to show, to prove to the Alpha Quadrant that they will keep their 
promises, and they will keep their treaties, which again makes other races more likely to side with them. Yay. Brilliantly little constructed thing there. <clears throat> so Garak has his little goodbye. I'm just kind of going through scenes here. There's a lot of really good scenes. If it's not obvious, I really like this episode. Uh, Garak has his story to Zial about himself. And he sells, he sells it. He just says it with such a plume. Andrew Robinson, of course, is an awesome actor, and I love him. Um, I don't like the romance angle. I've never liked the romance angle between Zial and Garak. But I do like the fact that she is being evacuated to Bajor, because that makes sense. I like the idea that she'll be more accepted on Bajor, because Bajor has had several years to kind of acclimate to the idea that not all Cardassians are evil. Nice touch. And I like the fact that Garak is going to find a way to survive, and as we find out at the end, he bails to the Defiant. Yeah, I don't blame him. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure Dukat would have him strangled with his bare hands uh, if he stayed. So, then they have the wedding. Aww. And then immediately after the wedding, it's like, okay, you need to go to Bajor. Get to Bajor. I'm going to stay here. Rom even quotes Casablanca. He does a good job of it, too. Max Grodenchik actually is a surprisingly charismatic actor. I say surprisingly, because usually when you say the word charismatic, you're thinking of someone strong, willful, and tough. But Max Grodenchik actually does manage a very charismatic performance. and I, It's one of the reasons I enjoy him so much, even when he's not playing Rom. So he does a good job of his role and convinces her, yeah, you got to bail. And this leads smoothly into a scene with Quark. Now I want to comment on two things about that. First, <laughs> Quark mentions he'll give their relationship two months. Spoilers, they're still married in STO. Something about that makes me smile. The other thing, though, I'm staying to help protect you, Quark. I'm your brother. We belong together. And so I'm going to help defend you here. And Cork says, you're an idiot. Kisses him on the head and leaves. We've seen Cork grow a lot over the years. And Rom, too. It's just really strange. You can see one of the reasons it's so weird to go back through this show. You remember when Rom nearly killed Cork to become Nagus? That was like in season one or two. I forget when exactly. We sure have moved past that point, haven't we? Then again, Nog used to be a guy who barely had any lines, who was trying to steal some stuff from the dilapidated promenade back in Emissary, so... <sighs> now... Uh, Quark, of course... <laughs> Quark obviously cares, but, you know, he's he's staying because... What else is he going to do? And, well, he's he wants to be in a good position, and I don't blame him. Rom, of course, stays because I'm a Federation spy. Jake stays because he's an idiot. Oh, don't mistake me. I get his point. But Jake staying is a very stupid decision. He, said, he banks on the idea that they won't hurt him because he's the son of the emissary. That is a gamble on long odds. And the Dominion, to be frank, doesn't care that much especially since the Dominion can arrange accidents. He is very lucky the Dominion didn't have any specific malicious intent towards him. Because uh, they could have. I could also bring up the concept of political hostages, which is a very common concept in a lot of forms of warfare. Even nowadays we have POWs and the exchange thereof. Anyways, <clears throat> so, Garrick has a scene where he's talking to Odo. He laments that he didn't get to kill Dukat. By the end of today, everyone on the station will regret I didn't do that. 
I wonder how true that is. I know that sounds strange, but in the what-ifs... We all like to speculate on what-ifs, right? In the Elseworlds of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I'm actually not sure how different Dukat's absence would make things. Obviously, it would change things in the future, because Paul Wraiths, but at this point... I actually have a feeling the Cardassians would have been sublimated into the Dominion one way or the other. Dukat inviting them in allowed him, personally, a position of power. But they are still a vassal state under the yoke of the Dominion. By the way, you'll notice Wayun starts to finally crack the whip more than once in this episode. In fact, I love how calmly Wayun threatens Dukat. He doesn't raise his tone. He doesn't get all deadly. He just says... I expect he'll do better than this. Just just a very calm, conversational sort of a thing. It, it, it's wonderfully terrifying. I love Jeffrey Combs. Anyways. <clears throat> so, look at my notes. Damar! Oh, hey, Damar shows up again. You remember him, right? You, you don't remember him? All right, real question. How many of you really didn't recognize Damar when he shows up in this episode? Now, I'm not raising my hand, because I've always had an eye for recurring characters, even, even when I was a kid. But admittedly, I didn't think he was a significant character. I was just like, oh, hey, it's that Cardassian again. I don't think I recognize his name. But it, it was the guy, right? Dukat's number one. So, all right, cool. He's still there. Good to know. They mentioned the size of the fleets. I mentioned 50 strong in the initial fleet. This is officially the beginning of the fleet size in Star Trek getting to be something a little more approaching what it should be. I've talked about this before. In fact, this goes all the way back to my discussions in Season 3 of TNG. Star Trek, forgive me for repeating myself, Star Trek often has this approach that a fleet battle is between one and another ship, or occasionally one ship and two ships, and very rarely one ship and three ships. That's the rare one right there. Over time, this has changed. Now, the original reason this was was because budget, right? There's only so much you can do with models, and it's expensive to do those model works. Now, this is actually not always true. In the original series, if you remember, they mentioned squadrons of Klingon ships fighting squads. Uh, actually, I forget what they called them. That's why I stuttered there. Fleets, you know, basically, of Federation ships. So that's actually a thing. But it was always off camera in the original series. But when they shifted over to TNG, the, the size of fleets just kind of became minuscule. Wolf 359 was substantial, but ultimately, if you think about it, that's like three squads of ships and nothing else. It was all they could manage at the time. And you can't tell me the Federation would span a huge space of time, only has 50 ships at its disposal, right? The reason I'm going into all this is because DS9 has been slowly pushing that size of fleets thing up bit by bit. I commented on this during the invasion of the Dominion War. Uh, the, Dominion, the fake Dominion War, what was the episode? Um, not Sacrifice of Angels, that's the future one. The Dias cast, that was it, in the Dias cast. And it was just, oh my god, there's... A, there's a hundred ships? That's huge! Well, we're getting into the era of hundreds of ships from now on. And that makes sense. After all, how often has Star Trek been in a state of open warfare with someone else? It's not a common occurrence, especially when that is effectively a state of total war. Anywho... <clears throat> so their shields now work against Jim Hadar weapons. What I find amusing about that is they never even explain that. I actually couldn't even find any behind-the-scenes information on that one. No interviews, no nothing in the Deep Space Nine companion. All I could find was the episode itself. So here's my speculation on that. I've talked before about when they first, very first showed the Dominion, they were OP. 
they were literally too strong and too good. Borderline Mary Sue. Now, a lot of people in the comments section disagreed with me on that because they presumed that all of that OP nature was actually very specific and, and, and to the point, site-specific uh, effort being put into putting up a brave funk. It was a bluff, in short. And they were just, look at what we could do, be afraid of us. And it wasn't actually what they were capable of on a normal basis. And that's possible. I don't buy it, but it is possible. However, the reason why this is relevant is because my theory is that the writers looked at the Dominion and said, we can't win. They can bypass our shields and beam through the bajillions of things and just all do it. We, we have to, we have to level the playing field. So they threw in that bit about their shields working about Dominion ships because if they didn't, the Dominion War would be over tomorrow. So, out of character reason. Shrug. <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes here. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. It, it, Jadzia mentions we're going to get married as soon as this is all over. <laughs> Remember that. And, uh... Cisco gives a really big speech. And he ends it with saying, In this place where I belong. How many of you really feel strongly about the concept of home? Now, I do. I don't actually have a home. In fact, I never have. Uh, I hope someday in my life, and I mean this sincerely, no joking, uh, I hope someday in my life to find a place that will be home for me. I haven't found it yet, but I understand the concept. This is just where I am right now. This is the place where I lay my head to rest. This isn't home. Now, the reason I say that and give that specific parallel of how I haven't found my home yet is because I feel like Cisco has... And I know this, especially given the, the, what's going to happen in Season 6 and Season 7. Cisco has found his home, and now he has to leave it. I can't even imagine what that feels like. So, it was a good speech. It hit right in the feels. And, of course, they torch the place, and hey, it's Emissary again. Oh, bit of a time loop, but, you know, we've had time loops in Star Trek before. No worries, no worries. So, Rom, he's staying behind. Jake's staying behind. Kira and Odo welcome, you know, Dukat. Weyoun is like, oh, found. Uh, we're basically establishing some of the character dynamics going for the next six episodes. But the last thing I wanted to comment on is way back in season one or two, there was a really bad DS9 episode where these people, fragments of people's memories that are actually alien beings show up to show. There was one that showed up as a fake Dax. There was one that showed up as Rumpelstiltskin, I think. And there was one that showed up as a baseball player who gave his baseball to Cisco. Now, that episode sucked. But it gave Cisco the baseball, which has been on his desk ever since, and will now start to be actually a surprisingly large character point and thematic point going forward. In fact, even in, this in, even in this episode, it leaves a message both for the audience and for the characters that Cisco will be returning. That's why he leaves his baseball there. And I just point that out because in the next several episodes, Ducat is going to start getting really fixated on that baseball. Overall, a very powerful, very excellent end to Season 5. A uh, very Dunkirk kind of a situation. Uh, I guess I have nothing else really to comment on. Now, that's not true. But I want to save that for next week. So, tune in next week for the remainder of my thoughts. See you in Season 6, guys.